0: Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sather. Today we're talking about...
1: ...protests and policing, and the question of who watches the watchman, or to use you know, an earlier formulation of that that we see in, in Plato, remembering back to our intro to philosophy days, who guards the guardians and this is a major issue right now as all across our nation we're seeing protests some of which are being dealt with in uh, we could say fair and just ways and others that are being dealt with by uh, quite a bit of violence on the part of police and provocation and and the use of um, all sorts of tactics and technology that places them at an immense advantage and you know We're going to get into a lot of different issues here, um, but I think one of the things that we could start by, by talking about is that, you know, all of this broke out or was catalyzed by the George Floyd killing and the, the lack of, of reaction on the part of the city of Minneapolis to it. And for a lot of people, this was it wasn't the last straw, but, it, you know, a catalyst is something that in chem, chemical terms brings things out of out of a a um, solution that they're in so that they can precipitate out there's there's always got to be something in the background and at this point there's so much in the background of what's going on that it's it's brought out Hundreds of thousands of people across the nation, in a time of um, pandemic, so people are putting their own lives at risk. And you know what is the one central issue that a lot of this revolves around: uh, police aggression and brutality, particularly against members of the African American community. And what we've seen on the side of the police, uh, some people have kind of made this into a joke, but it, but it's not something really that to laugh about. Is that the police are. in in many cases using exactly the sorts of things that um, were being protested against to try to break the protests. So this really is a, a question of who watches the watchman, who guards the, the guardians. And and this goes all the way back to Plato and the Republic, right? And the idea was that you need you need some people who are particularly courageous or spirited to be the police, to be the military, to be the protectors of everyone. And you think about what police are supposed to be doing. The motto is protect and serve, protect, right? And so that is what allows them to have the authority that they're given, and the discretion, and the capacity to use deadly violence. The fact that they're supposed to be protecting, that is the end, that is the purpose, that is the, the primary reason to have police. It's not all the other things to like keep make sure that windows don't get broken, it's to protect people. And when police become predatory, and they're no longer protecting, but instead attacking their flock. Plato saw this as a problem all the way back in that time. He said they're like dogs that you know uh, attack the sheep, and that has you know that something has to be done about that. What were you going to say, Dan?
0: Uh, you know, it's with George Floyd. It's just the the whole idea of the catalyst and. You, you see this over and over and over. And every time we have a, a, a incident where people are like this is going too far, there's always like, Oh, well he did this or, you know, it was in the situation in the moment, but the, the, I wanted to say one of the things that helps make this a catalyst was that it was like eight and a half minutes of him yeah. slowly murdering this person. And it's so, uh, Unable for anyone to say that that action was not justified. Um, that
1: that it was unjustified. Yeah,
0: yeah. It was. It was absolutely. There's no way that you could make an argument that it was justified.
1: Yeah, and there've been a lot of dodges. The medical examiner trying to say, "Oh, pre-existing conditions." You know, and my response to that when people were posting that was. Well, that's why nobody should kneel on anybody's neck for any amount of time, because who knows who has pre-existing conditions? You don't take risks like that if you're doing it. And then, you know, adding to it the fact that it was being video recorded and the cops didn't care. They were perfectly fine with people watching them kill somebody and the other three cops keeping, keeping people at bay, uh, which, which tells you that there's more to the story. right? It tells you that they think they can act with complete impunity and that they're going to be protected. And in, in today's America, largely because of legislation to uh, absolve police departments from blame and poor leadership. Supreme
0: Court yeah. decisions.
1: We have allowed there to be set up a situation in which the police largely are not accountable.
0: Qualified immunity.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And I can't, For the life of me, I can't think of the name of the particular case at the moment, but the, the one that set the precedent that on any instant in which a police officer is has the feeling that they might right. have bodily damage to them yeah, yeah. they can use deadly force and it can be an instant it can be like you know a nanosecond and and that will give them cover to do
1: whatever yeah and you know this is something i think this might be a topic for us to explore at another time and i've been thinking mm-hmm. a lot about this the notion that a again you know police officers are supposed to be courageous if we think about the classic thing, so the mm-hmm. the idea that they can say, "Oh, I was in fear of my life when they were heavily armed, and oftentimes had all sorts of advantages over whoever it was that they were, um, you know, going to be contending with or bringing force to bear on," to me just seems like an outright lie. And you know, it's it's bad enough that there's killing, right? Unjust killing. Mm-hmm. The lying about it, the cover up, makes it. Far worse because it denies justice to the the victims, and not just to the victims themselves, but to their families and to the community, to everybody who says that could be me. You see, so many uh, young African, especially African American, but not just them, men saying, "Wow, I I could be in that person's place, and you know, if there wasn't a camera trained on me, nobody would even know. I mean, it wouldn't save my life, but nobody would even would even know that." the uh, story is recorded by the police after the fact, after they get their stories straight, would be um, taken as, as, as the real one. And, and, you know, you look back at American history, I mean, again, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're enabled by the fact that, that people have felt that what they were doing was somehow okay, they'd actually write down about, say, lynchings that they did, you know? Um, now, we know that, that that's wrong, um, and the police know it's wrong, too, but they do it and they they get away with it so often. And so this was catalyzing. There, there's so many people, I think, uh, not just within the particularly affected communities, but all over the place who are like, this is too much. This is this. This is this is the the time uh, when, you know, it's, it's gone too far. And then when they started expressing that and other people started pushing back, you know, what could have happened quite easily would be um, people push back and then everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, maybe we won't take a stand on this one. Or it could have been just like one day of protests in, in Minneapolis and a few echoes around. But instead what we have is what seems to be a growing movement.
0: Right. And that sustained movement is the thing that is going to actually cause eventual change. And it's really interesting I hope. to the point, right? Yeah, it's really interesting to the point where uh, when we all got cameras on our cell phones on our persons all the time the the rate at which we have uh ufo sightings has dropped precipitously and the rate of that police have been uh acting in uh negative ways towards the populace has gone way up
1: that's interesting yeah i
0: what what could have caused that
1: you know and and it's not just having the capacity to record i mean you think back to the um la yeah yeah and, and the fact that there was a guy who had a video camera, because otherwise nobody would have believed Rodney King, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just that we have the capacity to record, which, which also works against us. You know, the cops are going to be scouring um, all the protester videos and things like that for faces to try to bring them in on things. So it's not a, it's not a pure um, on the side of the people sort of thing. But the fact that we have social networks, is incredibly important as well because these videos then get onto Twitter and Facebook. They even make it onto the uh, old, you know, old school cable news stuff. Although the cable news at this point in time seems to be doing a uh, the well, you know, there's both sides to the story sort of thing. It's it's also false equivalence. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and we should talk about that in in just a moment. That false equivalence because it is a, it is a fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And not only is it a fallacy in the sense of being something that goes against truth, it's also unjust to engage in. But one of the things I wanted to say very quickly before that is there's a generational gap between those who get most of their news from newspaper websites and cable news where it's this, well, you know, both sides are doing things. We we really need to be balanced with this. Um, And the younger generations which are getting it largely from social media and from opinion sites like, say, Vox or uh, Slate or you know um, Atlantic, where they're they're seeing in almost in real time. If you're on Twitter, it's almost in real time now. What's happening in cities across the states, um, and you get to see the the people posting raw video of mm-hmm. police. You know, say, not just attacking protesters, but attacking clergy and attacking press people and attacking medical personnel, really going, the, going over the line.
0: And the supercuts they're in, you know, they'll sort of be like, oh, it's not like this litany of things where we can like actually put this to, you know, some side of like a progression. And, and yeah. I don't know, I guess some music, you know, was, was turned into a little bit of entertainment, but it also it still pulls forth. It's like these things happen over and over and over that you see them. Yeah. And it's it's overwhelming.
1: So let's talk about this false equivalence thing for, for just a moment. Um, we, we usually label this as a fallacy, right? So mm-hmm. what, what does that mean?
0: A fallacy is something, an argument that uh, does not. Always bring you to the truth of the matter. And it's like the conclusion that you get from a fallacious argument may or may not be true, but um, there's no way that you can know it's true from the argument itself.
1: Yeah. So, so that's uh, important in the realm of of truth. What's wrong with using fallacies? I mean, especially if the other side is using fallacies, is there is there something bad about that? I mean, I think there is. I, <laughs>
0: I guess if you want to be an honest interlocutor, if you're just trying to be a sophist and you're just trying to convince people uh, ba- uh based on no truth, then yeah, fallacies are great. But yeah. if you actually want to get to the truth of the matter, the, the the core of the issue, then uh you've got to avoid them at all
1: costs. I suppose we could actually say that in in many cases fallacies are what allow groups that don't want to be in touch with the truth that want to deny reality they allow them to have a group cohesiveness through having a shared story right
0: yeah didn't we talk about that with um oh last week about lies blue lies or yeah shared shared lies
1: let's remind people what that that is so as opposed to white lies lies to like save face or preserve somebody else's feelings or uh, accomplish some sort of good task and uh, opposed to black lies where you're just trying to hurt people period blue lies are yourself yeah blue lies are, are, are somewhere in between and that's when you're protecting your group, you're, you're telling a lie that furthers the interests of your group, but but probably damages the interests of another group. So and, and this leads to something that that you had wanted to talk about um, earlier before we, we got on to this um, about why are people denying what's happening? Mm. Right. Yeah. What are the motives for, the, for that that people have?
0: I could definitely see that in the context of Blue Lies, that, like, um, you you see this within, I guess, uh, certain religions have this, like, you know, they, they put a, a statement of faith, and um, and it might be something that could be potentially easily um, disproven yeah. in yeah. a different, yeah. Um, but because I say it's true, and I, that is me, I guess, to a certain extent, signaling to everyone else in the group that I am part of the group because we all believe the same thing that no one else believes and yeah um, and that would that actually increases the cohesiveness of the group
1: yeah and the same dynamic can happen in terms of you know political organizations or social classes or um, I mean it could happen in terms of sports teams you see some of the, the crazy things people have to say about rival sports teams. Um, right. Usually not with such horrible effects. Um, depends on how bad the fan base is, you know. Right. Compare, say, Packers fans versus uh, Eagles fans. Right. Uh, Eagles are fans certain, are kind of dangerous. So. there are certain soccer hooligans? Yeah. I, I was just thinking, this is totally off topic, but it, when we were at Lambeau. I was at Lambeau for the very first time this last year. And there were a, it was a Packers versus Bears game. And so these oh. are, you know big big rivals right and because chicago is close enough to milwaukee they can easily drive up and i would say that two-thirds of the people in the stands were packers fans and i would say that um, the other third were were bears fans or or people who just weren't wearing anything you couldn't tell who they were for and i didn't see any packers fans treat bears fans badly you know Uh, now that's unusual I think in in quite a few places that you go and you're wearing the other team's thing. I mentioned Philly, great example. They will abuse you, <laughs> you <know? laughs> and 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 some of that has to do with this sort of in-group cohesion that we were just talking about, and it can be quite quite bad, and um, it can lead us to ignoring injustices that have. I mean, if we get away from the, the silliness of sports um, and talk about like generations of injustice towards. Minorities uh, here in Milwaukee—it's a prime example. We're still one of the most segregated large cities in the United States. Even though we've—you live in one area, River West, which is pretty desegregated, and I live here in the downtown, which is desegregated. If you were just looking at those areas, you wouldn't—you wouldn't notice what the rest of the city looks like, right? Right. And there's—and there's historical reasons for that, you know.
0: Redlining and.
1: Yeah, and uh the police have played a role in in that as, as well. So um so we should jump into talk s- about yeah.
0: peace at the moment. Let's talk about negative peace and positive
1: peace. Okay.
0: Uh and so I, I was reading a little bit from I guess the whole thing uh MLK's letter from a, the Birmingham jail and this this passage really is very impactful. It's, I've been Greatly disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you, but you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods or of direct action. Uh, who feels that he can set the timetable for another's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until
1: a more convenient season. Yeah. Yeah, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail is is um, a really important piece to read. You know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion of Martin Luther King in the last couple days in light of the George Floyd thing because um, a lot of people have said, you know, he's the person who all of the what he's calling white moderates, and nowadays we call them liberals, um, will bring up and say, we've got to make sure that everything is, remains totally nonviolent. And it's true that Martin Luther King was a advocate of, of nonviolent direct action. After, by the way, having been an advocate of armed self defense he he changed his mind and he changed his mind in a robust and rigorous way there was nothing namby pamby or sort of you know let's let's just all kumbaya get together and get along sort of stuff with it he was seriously committed to it and it's true that that um uh, white conservatives and white liberals love Martin Luther King because they love to not read Martin Luther King. They love to. Right. They la- love the idea of let's all be nice and get along. And they they memorize one or two lines from the I Have a Dream speech. But if you really read the letter from a Birmingham jail, it's an indictment of not only the society of that time, but you know our our cities and uh, small towns and suburbs right now as well. And
0: and just later on in the, the letter, he talks about how, um, if you don't work with us as the nonviolent, right. Then you're going to force the hand and move these people to those more violent groups that are still going about to the same, um, goals. And he talks about specifically the, um, brotherhood of Islam, uh, and how are uh, the,
1: the nation of Islam? Yeah. yeah
0: nation of Islam. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and um, how they basically have no buy-in. They believe that the, the current uh, government and society uh, has no place for them. And so they have yeah. no problem being violent within
1: it. Yeah, and, and you could say that there was – I mean there, there was a, a, a contrast between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Uh, Malcolm X, you know, the phrase everyone associates with him is by any means necessary – Um, There were some strictures that even he thought you had to to follow, but um, the the entire uh, Black Power movement that was not devoted to uh, nonviolent direct action looked at what Martin Luther King was doing as as essentially giving in. Um, But I think Martin Luther King was able—Martin Luther King and, we should always remember, all the people that were surrounding him and working with him— were able to accomplish what they, they did, because there was that, that well, if you're not going to deal with us, you're going to deal with these guys over here, and they're not going to be as forgiving. The other thing I'll say, too, is you know, Martin Luther King drew quite a bit on, on Gandhi, who also had a philosophy of nonviolent activism. And when Gandhi was asked about resisting the British, he said, well, you know we can appeal to their consciences. And that's the key thing, if you can't appeal to the conscience of the those who are engaging in unjust oppression, exploitation, suppression, all these these sorts of things, if you're dealing with Attila the Hun, uh, there's no such thing as nonviolent direct action in that case. You have to use violence against them. And so, you know, if you now this isn't what Martin Luther King is saying, but if you extend that logic further, if there's a side that is going to try to use whatever tricks and whatever uh, lies and whatever um, force they can use, and t- essentially terrorizing people uh, to further their side. Well, maybe um, then they can't be reasoned with, and uh, it's up to you know the people who are at risk of falling into that um, to pull themselves back from the precipice. I think you know if the if the police forces were really to become just a bunch of armed thugs, then I think we would have a moral duty to all rise up against them, quite frankly. Um, but it's not—it's not at that point. There, mm-hmm. it is possible to appeal to people's conscience, um, and so that makes it imperative to keep making the case over and over again. That—that that what we need here is—is is to see justice being done, not um, a suppression of, of protest, but um, actually allowing it to to go on. You know. And I, I think that can be done while still protecting human life and protecting property and all, all these other things that, that are indeed important. But the, the priority here really has to be bringing these, these festering issues out into the open and allowing people to express what's wrong with, with police violence directed systematically at at minorities over years and years and years you know
0: so this is the the negative piece
1: uh, yeah you know, exactly you,
0: you look at this letter and it's like a scathing polemic which is i guess a, a scathing rebuke of of certain positions and they're talk he talks about like how in birmingham specifically it's like the number one place where people they're on um, un uh, investigated bombings of black homes and churches and so this you know, this negative piece is this like this false sense of peace that there's just there's not fighting on the streets because one group has so uh, restricted the rights of the other that uh, that they won't openly engage, but it doesn't mean that the problem, the basis of that problem, has actually gone away. It simmers yeah. and sees right under the surface and is waiting, like you know, I guess, <laughs> a blister that is wanting to be popped
1: you know and i think going back to talking about the technology i think in this age of interconnectedness those sorts of things can't be hidden away as effectively as they were in the past you know if you um I mean, why do we know about so many police killings, not only of, of African-American young men? I mean, I even think about that, that one white guy who was ordered by the cop to, like, you know, lay down. And he did it, and the cops started shooting him up anyway. You know, And, and we, right. we know about that precisely because we've seen the videos because they're there in social media. And so I think the, you know, the, the people who think that they're going to get away with stuff and cover it up, um, they may not go to jail um but people know about it public pub, public opinion is able to latch onto it in a way that it, it wasn't able to in the past
0: right like you know the, the reason we're you know, we're here we're recording you know, the, the exactly the cost to entry into getting your voice out is so much lower <laughs> than it used to be you say like had to buy a printing press and ink and paper yeah. and s- distribute that stuff and that was a lot of things to do and undertaking and this is like yeah i don't know how much time did it take us
1: yeah i think that and i think that's an important thing to keep in mind it's it's a good thing to be able to encourage those who are going to be pushing for change and and the push for change it's not going to be done this summer and it's not going to be over just with the November election I think this is one of those cases where there, there is something that's happening now and there is some forward momentum but it's going to have to be you know I keep coming back to this phrase that I, I learned from my, my wife who, who keeps using it well I mean it's it's almost meta in this way it's consistent pressure relentlessly applied You know, I think that's that's what we're going to have to use. It's not going to be like narratives where the you know, we were talking about Star Wars earlier, where we blow up the Death Star. And and, you know, now, you know, we have the the, everyone gets a medal and and we're we're, you know, we're good until the next movie. It's going to be little steps here and there um, consolidating gains. Um, and, and you know, another thing that this is going to take, uh, you know we're getting actually quite, quite away from some of the points we want to talk about, but I think this is quite important. Change is not going to happen without buy-in ultimately also from the people who were trying to change, the, in this case the, the police. So yeah. you know, we're going to have to find ways to get rid of a lot of bad cops. And by get rid of, I mean get them fired, get them out of, get them out of being police, and and not not in the sense where they get fired in one department and go three suburbs down and get hired at another one. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of screening and a lot of holding leadership accountable and and all of that. But if we want there to be good policing, we're going to have to. We're we're not going to just be able to say, you know, all cops are bastards or anything like that. That's not that's not going to be. That may be a nice thing to say when we're, you know, riling people up. Um, actually my son said that earlier today to to me on the phone in a discussion, but we don't, we don't want them all to be bastards. You know, we want them ultimately to be protectors and there may be some things in, you know, in the nature of policing that are rather corrosive and we have to target those. We have to, Mm. we have to make police actually care about ethics and accountability. Um, and that's going to be a tough thing to do, you know, so we're going to have to push and push and push and push and push. And so this I think whole, I th- whole
0: thing kind of oh.
1: – Well, I think some people are going to run out of steam, inevitably. Right. Right? And that means that other people are going to have to step up at that point and carry on the, um, the thing. But I, I think what we're seeing here now really is a historical turning point. Um, and so this
0: this really makes me think of uh, you know – we're going to jump around a little bit here. Yeah. But uh, down to the 3.5% rule.
1: Yeah, talk about that.
0: So this is um, Erica Chenoweth and uh, Maria J. Steffen, who are uh, both PhDs, and they were have been working on on different aspects of what causes uh, you know either revolutions or just political change. Mm-hmm. And they did a um, a meta-analysis. I don't know if it's meta-analysis. It's it's analysis of historical events from 1900 up to 2006, and they found that if you can get 3.5% of the population to join an active and sustained protest, it succeeds. Every single position or p- a protest um, that is either um, violent or not um, that gets 3.5% of the population to buy in and actually participate um, either results in the government adopting the p- positions of mm-hmm. the protesters or the disintegrates the country and so you guys see that in like uh egypt and tunisia where during the
1: what if you have counter movements where like you've got you've got your 3.5 but then there's another 3.5 on the other side and they're pushing back on on the uh same stuff do i don't know
0: uh she doesn't go quite into it but it makes me think of um I guess Egypt again, where yeah. there was the um, the Arab Spring thing, and then there was also the Muslim Brotherhood that was also pushing, um, and they weren't they were guess both pushing for uh, the ouster of uh, I believe it was Mubarak yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Um. Uh. But there was definitely the Muslim Brotherhood group and the the other group. Uh, and their ends weren't the same, even though the the means to get to their ends were the same. And so they worked together at one
1: point. Yeah, they nine. had very different different visions of what Egypt should look like after the military dictatorship was gone.
0: Um, and so this you know, the whole idea of like being sustained and and constantly you know, uh, pushing and pushing, and if you get a large enough portion of the population to join you, then you can push over the top. The problem is that violent campaigns are only attract uh, about a fourth on average of the people that nonviolent ones do and so hmm. you actually have if you if you can sustain a uh a non campaign it's actually one of the ways that you can get enough people to actually join you and that idea is one of the reasons why uh, people that oppose particular uh protests are so um uh, happy to try to paint the protesters in any way as
1: violent you know one of the things that i i had wanted to bring up is um and again i'll i'll use my my kid as a example um he was talking about you know we should riot and i said you want to avoid that word you know that that plays exactly into the hands of those who want to see an end to the protests and everyone to just shut up and get back to work. Um, Protest is what's happening. And protest is something that is not—I mean, Americans love to appeal to the Constitution, but this is something that is acknowledged as a moral right basically in every functioning democracy. That's what makes it a democracy, the fact that you can protest, not just that we have voting and things like that, but that you can actually Express yourself within organized civil society in in uh, ongoing ways, and A so redress
0: of grievances.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, if we can if if we can protest like you know, uh, companies changing the formula of their potato chips, um, which people do, you know. Uh, they get on Twitter and rail about it. Well, it's all all the more important that we be able to protest about things that really do matter. You know, our our politics, and the nature of our society, and how we distribute justice, and who who the policing falls upon, and who goes to jail and who doesn't. So I think you know when we're thinking about what's going on on the, the side, let's call them the side across from the police because the police are lined up in lines, not, generally not engaged in dialogue or anything like that. They're lined up facing a group of people. So the group of people consists largely of protesters and that's, that's what they are and they are nonviolent. And then we have um, some people who are there to, to riot and like, you know, this usually in Milwaukee is happening after curfew. Um, you know, um, some of them are there to break windows and loot things but they are a tiny minority you know they are by far not what the the movement at present is about and then we have some other instigators that are there to stir up stuff for for other reasons it's not just selfish it's because they've got some sort of ideological beef and some of them are from the the far right Um, some of them are from the far left and again very small minorities the vast majority in each of the, the places that, that I've actually been able to see, and I've looked at a lot, what's going on in a lot of these American city protests are people who are engaging in essentially nonviolent direct action.
0: Yeah, the vast majority of them see that. And, you know, I would actually add one more group, which has got a unfortunate long history in the United States mm. and all over the world are, um, you know, uh, Counterintelligence programs. Oh, you know, infiltrators! Agent provoca- yeah. yeah, agent yeah. provocateurs. And you know, if if you're not familiar with it, you should probably become familiar with Con Intel Pro, um, which was a program that ran through from 1956 to 71 um, yeah. in the FBI under you know our our best friend J Edgar Hoover. Um, in order to basically try to stamp out the quote unquote subversives and uh, and basically it was just a a campaign to uh either uh discredit from the outside to try to pull up dirt of leaders to create dirt and um, to um, infiltrate and cause disorder and discord within the groups to uh infiltrate into protests to either um uh start violence it, themselves or to instigate violence in others, yeah. um, and all the way up to uh, assassinations of leadership within these groups.
1: Yeah, you know, and it wasn't just in America too. Um, the Brits had their own intelligence oh. people doing that with their their own um, leftist movements, and, and I think this is this is kind of a common thing. Um, you know this. So a little bit off topic here, but if you think about the resources that are devoted to carrying out that sort of infiltration, it's not something that you can do on the cheap. And that money has to come from somewhere. And where is where is it coming from? It's coming from the taxpayers. It's coming from the the people who are, uh, you know, the ones who are, are, are upset about things, Um So and we can say the same thing about the police. You know, one of the issues with the the Minneapolis Police Department is that it's so well funded. Forbes did an article a while back and they looked at all these big metropolitan police forces. Minneapolis was spending over 30 percent of their budget on policing. That's an awful lot that's not being devoted to schools, to public health, to all the other things that we, you know, we really need. Um, instead, uh, you know, they're, they're given all this money and then they buy riot gear with it and they, you know, pay for lawsuits and all, all these, these other things to essentially create their, their police as a protected class. Um, you know, another thing that uh, we could probably go on and on about this all day, but another big problem with with uh, police, and this is a, a problem here in Milwaukee, is that they don't have to reside in the places that they're policing. Right. I don't know if you remember that movie Copland. Um, the no. it's a very interesting. It, it kind of went under the radar. It didn't get a lot of. Uh, 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 accolades as far as I remember but it was quite good it was about New York City and it was about this this small suburb town where all these cops lived who actually worked in the city and um, they would get around the housing things by having like in a little apartment in the city that they could claim residency in but they actually lived outside of the city so that they could you know do their own thing and and the local sheriff undercovered corruption and then he was pressured not to do anything about it the sheriff is played by Sylvester Stallone not a great actor. Um, so, you know, obviously, you know, uh, it's not going to get a lot of uh, accolades for that. But um, the basic idea was if, you, if you're not actually in the community that you're serving, it's going to be harder to identify with the people in the community and to care about them and not just to see it as us versus them as being an occupying force, which is what's part of what's happening right now. I think we have a similar problem too when we call out the National Guard. You know these national guards people, they don't have a stake in Milwaukee, unless they're from Milwaukee. You know. Right.
0: And if you're not part of the group, then you're you're. You know, I don't know. It kind of makes me think of uh, the ancient Spartans, and they, um, who are the? the (laughs) Thank God things aren't that bad. (laughs) Yeah, but just like (laughs) they always saw themselves as an occupying force there because they were. Yeah. uh they were an occupying force technically Uh, that's quite true what was the 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 other
1: helots yeah. yeah so the i mean the spartans were essentially an invading people who superimposed their rule on a much broader population who they enslaved and maintained in slavery um that entire time every once in a while they'd revolt and then they'd be put down with really bloody reprisals and they were um, you know the, the part of the spartan ethos was to be predatory on these people it's interesting that when you bring up the spartans aristotle in the politics talks about the spartans and as opposed to like say socrates and plato who kind of admired them to some degree but also thought they were corrupt aristotle thought that the spartans were really um misguided that they had essentially, they were sort of like an animal, he didn't use this metaphor, but they're sort of like an animal that had bred itself for one purpose and got really good at that purpose and became really crappy at everything else. So Aristotle talks about them as you know, being really great soldiers and preparing for war. And up until that time, the Spartans really hadn't been beaten in battle by, by anybody, although later on the, the Thebes would beat them. Uh, the, the, the sacred band would, would uh, destroy the Spartan um, record in, in that respect. And Aristotle said, well, that's great. You're great at fighting. You're terrible at everything else. Because you you made that the center of your existence, this struggle for dominance and honor. You know, think about the way that, that Trump was talking just the other day. You have to dominate, he's telling the, the state uh, governors. Well, that's foolish talk. You don't dominate a, a free people that you actually care about and value. That's the way that a oppressor talks. You know, that's not the way somebody who wants to get people to to buy in and and think that we live in a society together talks
0: yeah spartans sound like uh several hundred years of uh negative peace
1: exactly yeah yeah and they Uh, and and and, you know when everybody around you has that mindset you don't know any better that's that's the best you can hope for so negative peace right. right what's positive peace look like
0: A positive peace is uh, a true and lasting and sustainable peace built on harmony and justice and equity for all people.
1: So is that? Here's a question: Is that something that you can attain once and for all?
0: No, you have to keep on working for that because that thing is, you know, always crumbling.
1: Yeah. So the people who always, yeah, oh, you, you know, we addressed your problems. We gave you some handouts or however they want to frame it. Why can't you just be happy and, you know, not protest? They're they're not for a positive piece, then. They're, they're for a negative piece, right? Right. I think part of what would be required, and this is, so I'm going to bring in another philosopher um, who's still alive right now, Jürgen Habermas, um, one of the... Uh, key thinkers of discourse ethics. And I know one of the things you want to talk about is the social contract. So, so Habermas talks about something like this. We have a, you could say, buy-in that has to happen. We have to figure out what kind of society we're going to have. And it's something that we have to continually reevaluate and, um, continually remake. And we do that by talking with each other. And and, uh, by the way, my mentor actually sat down with Habermas at a conference and did precisely this, the the sort of haves and the have-nots at this, this philosophy conference split up into two groups and were not physically but, you know, rhetorically at each other's throats. Habermas actually called like a meeting of everybody and sat down and put some you know, drinks on the table and said, okay, we're gonna hash this out. And what, we, what, what you do is you treat your interlocutors as somebody who actually has something to say, has something to contribute. They're not just an enemy across the table. They're somebody mm-hmm. that you can deal with. And you work out norms that can be acceptable to everybody. And you don't stop until you can get at least some consensus some buy-in and the only way to do that is to take risks to be willing to say okay we were wrong in doing this Uh, we apologize Um, what would it take to make this right you know and that takes a lot of courage on the part of uh, those who have benefited and exploited and you know made especially
0: for those people that see that saying that they're wrong is a uh, mark of weakness
1: that's a big problem right yeah, I guess a lot of people, some people just will never admit that they're wrong. Uh, and then others, they worry that if they, you know, the proverbial give an inch, they'll take a mile. If I say that I'm wrong and I apologize for this, then they'll talk mm-hmm. about the other 20 things I didn't apologize for, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I, I would like you to go into a little bit on the uh, higher law.
1: Oh, that Martin Luther King talks about in the letter from a Birmingham jail, right?
0: And how that like intersects with you know Cicero and Augustine and Aquinas.
1: Yeah, so it, it's in the Western traditions. It goes all the way back to. Cicero the Stoics and also to Aristotle Aristotle talks about something like this and even Sophocles has Antigone talk about a higher law that supersedes that of the the city So this is a, a long-standing concept and you can also find a similar thing in Indian philosophy and Chinese philosophy I think it's something that's kind of a constant this notion that whatever laws we currently have in place and whatever rulers Whatever we're gonna call them, the executive, the magistrate, you know, mm-hmm. the people who make the decisions on the spot and then the people who direct them, none of them get to say that like Judge Dredd, I am the law, right? They're all accountable right. to something higher. So they're measured by it. And, you know, this this could come from different sources. Um Cicero thought that it was sort of built into the fabric of Of nature as as part of what's inherent in rationality. Thomas Aquinas thought it came from God ultimately. The natural law is a reflection of the eternal law. Um, Augustine talks about this, but they all agree in this, that if a law is going to be, if a, a human law, a practice, a norm, an executive order is going to be just, it cannot be out of sync with the higher moral law if it is Mm -hmm. it loses its legitimacy so for example um, using the military to attack protesters that goes against the the moral law Um, I mean if if they and you can say well what if those protesters were themselves armed like the ones who are storming state houses earlier and they were firing them? well they're not protesters at that point now there's something different. Right. Now they are armed belligerents and you, can, and you can use force against them. Insofar as they remain protesters, you can't use deadly force against them or potentially deadly force. That is a violation of the moral law and those who engage in it and those who command it should be held to standards. As we see, for example, um, you know, a little bit of breaking news by the time that we're, this is actually playing, it's, it's been several days, but a little bit of breaking news is that former uh, Defense Secretary Mattis unequivocally condemned President Trump's use of troops to, to clear out uh, the Capitol so he could have his photo ops. And he, you know, he's not mincing any words in saying that there was an abuse of executive authority in Lafayette Square. Um, now i think what he's doing there is he's referring to the same moral law higher law that say martin luther king would have been referring to
0: yeah mlk has got a a couple quotes here uh, on unjust laws unjust law is a code that the majority inflicts on a minority that is not binding on itself and a Ah, just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that is willing to follow itself.
1: That's this a key. Sameness aspect. made
0: legal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. being living up to the very standards that you're attempting to impose on somebody else, that is of the essence of being a moral person. Um, bad people make excuses for themselves and impose what they can't themselves do on other people. Um, and you know, another thing to keep in mind too with Martin Luther King that I think is particularly important in our time, he said that a law could be unjust as the law itself. So like if I have a law that, that requires me, for example, to go next door and beat up my neighbor or else I'm gonna be fined. okay, that's an unjust law, right? That, that needs to go. Um, but a law can also be unjust in its application. And this is where policing comes in. If a law is on its face just but is it's imposed unfairly on some people and then it's not applied to others, that makes the law unjust. So if um, – well, let's take the example of protesters, right? So the police did nothing, absolutely nothing, when we had uh, – People breaking the law when it came to COVID, going around with ma- without masks, saying that they wouldn't do that, sometimes spitting on, on police, um, you know, not observing social distancing, and carrying weapons around that they, they, there's no reason they should have in any civilized society, regardless of what, what amendments there are. Um, you know, they were, that people were carrying those around just to terrorize. That was was the, the reason for it. They should have all been arrested and thrown in jail and disarmed and charged with all sorts of things. None of them were, not a single one. And now, because people want to protest police brutality, suddenly it's okay to use you know tear gas grenades and shoot rubber bullets, which aren't actually rubber at people and to attack the press and attack medical personnel so that's a clear you know example of a law that's unjust in its application
0: another one is uh, you know there's a study by the ACLU that went from two thousand one to two thousand ten and looked at the um, arrest and conviction rate of mm. uh, black and white individuals for marijuana possession specifically from 18 to 25 year olds in which you know about 20 20 uh, 25 to 30 percent of both black and white actually whites have more usage than blacks in this particular study um and uh so basically negligible difference in the actual usage but uh the uh Black youth—I uh, guess not youth, but whatever—um, 18 or 25, uh, young people were You're
1: four times more likely,
0: are. yeah, oh, <laughs> uh, are are four times more likely to be arrested and seven to eight percent more likely to be convicted, and that yeah. is definitely an uh, incongruity in the application of the law.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean you can say we can come up with all sorts of examples the drug um, Application of drug laws is a great example. Sentencing is another prime example um, the, the whole stop-and-frisk thing that was uh, finally brought up in a useful way in in the democratic debates um, Clearly applied much more heavily to to uh, minority communities than to the white community and so those are those are some of the things that create underlying. Um, I don't even want to say resentments, because resentments almost implies as if there isn't a good reason to be upset about these things. These are legit. These are things that people ought to be legitimately upset about. And those of us who are not. Um, particularly impacted about it, we should be indignant. That, that's an emotion that I think we ought to feel. We shouldn't be like, oh, well, I'm glad it doesn't you know, affect me. You know, lucky lucky where, where I ended up in society. Instead, we should be like, well, this is nonsense that, that you know, we're using our resources to police these people and not these people. You know, we're, we're distributing harms over here and distributing all the nice benefits over here. Um, that should bother us, I think. Now, this is, this is a great place for us to talk a little bit about, well, how, how should we get bothered? You know, you right. and I are both <laughs> co-leaders of the Milwaukee Stoic Fellowship. Somebody might say, well, that's not very stoic of you to say that you should get bothered. I think that it's perfectly fine to feel an emotion of righteous ind- indignation. Um, you don't use that as your sole guidance or fuel. I or mean, your...
0: Your, yeah, your motivation.
1: Yeah, and you don't want to like stay upset all the time. But, you know, like Seneca says, anything that you can accomplish with anger, you can accomplish with reason. You can, you can stick with it. There's this, this view that as rational beings who have a common social nature and care about each other, we can be emotionally involved and rational at the same time and sort of stick with what we need to do. Um, and you can't
0: fall into that, uh, you know, indifference trap. That just because you don't have the
1: direct control
0: over the situation yeah. and the outcomes, that you shouldn't act. You're, you're compelled to act, um, regardless, because you are, yes, you know, working for the betterment of your, your, the polis, the general, the, the cosmopolitan, the, the entire po-
1: political yeah, group are the people whole, of the right? world. Yeah, there's that, uh, and then. There's also another resource I think there is in Stoicism is, I mean, Epictetus says that our duties, our, our obligations are revealed to us by our, the names that we bear, the the ways in which we describe ourselves. So if I describe myself as a fellow citizen of the United States or fellow resident of Wisconsin or fellow resident of Milwaukee, and I see my fellow residents being oppressed by the police for talking about how the police have been oppressing people. I have a duty to those people because they're members of my community to stick up for them, to right. and care so, about them.
0: So, you know, to be very direct, we are uh, saying a practice that you can do is to go and go to the protest yourself you know one to support the cause but also if you are are fearful of what it is to be in a protest if you don't know Mm. um if you have this uh misunderstanding of what they are doing going there and being in the thick of it will really remove that uh fear erode that fear that you might have had beforehand especially if you go like during the daytime you know yeah, don't noon, go at like
1: like two o'clock in the morning.
0: <laughs> right. You know. Was that the old adage like nothing good happens after two AM?
1: Yeah, that that's true. You know, I, I, I think that, that some people who would be leery of doing that, um, would would say, Well, you know, I don't want to be like advocating what they're doing. I don't want to be mistaken for being one of the protesters. Do you think there's there's a risk of that?
0: I think there's a really small risk or maybe find a uh, protest that you find a little bit more benign if this one for some reason is not your cup of tea but like just yeah. to to experience the event of of getting together and saying we think there's something wrong with our society at the moment and we are going to make our voices known that we don't enjoy that And one of these things here is this idea of courage and courage being synonymous with some sort of violence. And Mm. I I would like to try to be a tough guy is
1: courageous, right?
0: Yeah, Yeah. because uh, nonviolent action is courageous because it gets results that we looked at earlier. The 3.5 percent rule here uh, it doesn't need to be violent. It can be nonviolent and it can cause massive systematic change.
1: It takes more courage not to just swing at people. I think, in yeah. a lot of cases, you know. Um, what about people who? Thing. Someone just provoked me. What about people who can't effectively go out and protest, like those who already are sick or are, you know, at, at risk of? Let's say they have immun- compromised immune systems or they're living with people who um, that could be a problem. With what? What can they do?
0: so there's there's a number of things you can uh either uh, support them by either support like giving them monetary support or uh like material support food water whatnot um you can uh try to share the message online we have that ability nowadays Mm. rather easily there are uh, distributed tactics like in um iran where they would like every night at a certain time would get out and they'd yell and bang pots on their roofs because they were being uh militarily shut down and so they they kept the protest going um even in face of violence by uh distributing the protest
1: yeah well those all sound like good things to do and um what what if somebody is you know not quite sure whether they where they they fit in right now with the whole situation. I think there are some people who are kind of fence sitting. What would you say to them?
0: Uh, I think this is the time to read as much as you possibly can,
1: and, and come and, to a a decision then, right?
0: Right, because you you have to come to a decision at some point in time. You, you really shouldn't be fence sitting on this one.
1: Okay. Well, any any final thoughts to lead us out on?
0: So I've got a, a little quote from Captain Adama of the. Battlestar Galactica. There's a reason that you separate the military and the police. One fights the enemy of the state, and the other one serves to protect the people. When the military becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people. So say we all.